unfinished. If you've been keeping up with the Alliance uh, lately, unfinished, that is this year's missions emphasis. Now, as Pastor Paul said, we have missions conference or missions emphasis weekend coming up this next weekend, and we're going to hear about the work that God is doing in Russia. So today, my goal is to get us in missions mode, to prepare us for next weekend, all right? Now, before we get into what we're going to do, I, I want to define three terms real quickly that I'm going to be referring to throughout our time, so just so we're on the same page. So, missiologists, they differentiate between mission, singular, and missions, plural, all right? Mission is a broader term that highlights all that the church does that points to the kingdom of God, whereas missions is a narrower term, and it's referring to cross-cultural ministry. Then, the third term is missio dei, which is a Latin term used in theology for mission of God. And Scott Moreau says this about Missio Dei. Its central idea is that God is the one who initiates and sustains mission. So ultimately what we can glean from this phrase is that our God is a missionary God. And since we have a missionary God, we must be a missionary people. Therefore, every Christian must, must be involved in the Missio Dei. And why must every Christian be involved in Missio Dei? Because the mission assigned in Acts 1-8 is unfinished. Now this is also known as the Great Commission. We can, it can be found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And it's the last thing that Jesus said while he was on earth. So it's safe to assume that this is really important. So today we're going to look at Acts 1, 6 through 11, and as you turn there, I'll set the stage for you. So Luke, the author of Acts, in his uh, first book, the Gospel of Luke, he began to tell all that Jesus did and taught. And just a few verses before our passage, he says that after resurrecting from the dead, he appeared to the disciples for 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, over the past couple weeks, Pastor Paul has been uh, discussing the kingdom of God, what it is, where it is, and who it consists of. And today, we will see that the mission of God is to advance the kingdom of God. These two concepts are inseparably linked. So that sets the stage for us. So let's read Acts 1, 6-11. So when they had come together, the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come 
in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So when we read this passage, we can see in verse 6 that the disciples are still having a hard time figuring out what, why Jesus came to earth. They ask him whether this is a time when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. Because the Jews believed that the Messiah, when he would come, he would be a mighty military ruler. And he would free them from their, their bondage to the Roman Empire and restore the, the kingdom that was established with King David. I mean, after all, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promised David that you will have an heir on the throne forever. But the kingdom of Israel wasn't Jesus' concern at this point. The kingdom of God was his focus because it was this kingdom he came to establish. So we're going to spend most of our time today on verse 8 because this verse actually outlines the rest of the book of Acts. It tells us how the mission of God will advance the kingdom of God. So chapters 1 through 7 tell us of the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12, what happened in Judea and Samaria and then finally, chapters 13 to the rest of the book of Acts, it says what happened in the ends of the earth. So in verse 8, we see three spheres of mission. They are a series of three concentric circles moving outward from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But today, we're going to look at each of these spheres, but we're going to do so in reverse order, starting with the outermost, the ends of the earth, and working our way in to Jerusalem. And at the end, you'll see why I approached it this way. But, so, but let's first look at the ends of the earth. So as we explore this circle, I want to ask you this. Have you ever thought about how the gospel ended up here? How did events that happened so long ago, in a place so far away, in a culture so different, come to drastically impact and change your life here? During my time at Tacoa Falls College, I was a cross-cultural studies major. And while taking a class on the history of missions, uh, one of the books required for the class traced the history of Christian missions from Apostle Paul all the way to Don Richardson in Irian Jaya, today known as Papua. So from Jerusalem to Irian Jaya, which is actually the name of the book, and it shows how the gospel of the kingdom continued to spread throughout the whole world after the time of the New Testament. So the kingdom of God really broke into the sphere of mission with the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, starting in Acts 13 and going to the end. And actually, this is made very explicit in Acts 13, 47, when Paul is answering some Jews who are trying to contradict his message in Pisidian Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. Listen to what he says. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The exact same phrase is used here that was used in Acts 1.8. So Paul is making it clear that a new epoch of the Missio Dei has begun now that the gospel is moving beyond Judea and Samaria. And by the end of Acts, 
This message of salvation through Christ expanded all the way to Rome. And in fact, Paul covered so much ground and planted so many healthy churches that Luke said in Acts 19 that all of Asia Minor Minor heard the gospel. And then Paul himself claimed in Romans 15 that there was nowhere left for him to preach. So he was going to go to Spain, which was thought to be the literal end of the earth. Such bold claims beg the question, though. Was the Missio Dei completed in the lives of the apostles? Is mission still needed today? Well, the answer is pretty obvious when we look at our world today. As much as the gospel expanded out to the ends of the earth as a result of the preaching and church planning of the apostles, especially that of Paul, the ends of the earth are still being reached to this very day. So if you go to joshuaproject.net, you can see just how kingdom work is still to be done around the world. There are currently around 7.8 billion people on earth. Now there's said to be about 2.3 billion Christians on earth. Personally, I think that's a very high estimate. But if we accept that number, that means that there are currently 5.5 billion, billion with a B, lost souls walking around on this earth. And some have just entered into eternity since I began this sentence. So, First, it's important to note at this point that the phrase all nations in the parallel Great Commission, Commission passages in the Gospels means, uh, you know, figure out what it means. Does it mean all countries, all political states, or something different? Well, based on the fact that the Greek word is ethnos, from which we get our word ethnicity, it's widely accepted that taking the Gospel to all nations or the ends of the earth means proclaiming the Gospel amongst all ethnic or people groups. So let's look at some more statistics. Different sources say that there are between 12 to 17,000 distinct people groups around the world. Peoplegroups.org defines a people group as an ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity that is shared amongst its various members. They're ethnically or linguistically distinct from the people groups around them. Now, of this number, the twelve to 17,000, over 7,000 are considered unreached people groups. 7,000. And an unreached people group is defined as an ethnic or linguistic group with little to no gospel access. Well, what's little access? Less than 2% of the population is evangelical Christian. So if you have a people group that is made up of a million people, That means less than 20,000 people are Christian. Less than 20,000 people. And around 3.2 billion people, souls, compose this 7,000 unreached people groups. That means almost half of the planet has little to no gospel access. And it's quite clear then that the ends of the earth All nations still need to be reached. However, that's not the worst of it. There are what are called unengaged unreached people groups. Unengaged people groups have no active church planning attempts being made to reach them. 
Hence, they're considered unengaged because no one is engaging them with the gospel. So that means every single person within these people groups is born, raised, and dies without the opportunity to hear the gospel of salvation. Without intentional efforts made by the church to bring the gospel of Jesus to these peoples, they are guaranteed to spend eternity separated from God. And this is a hard truth to accept, but it's the very truth that must fuel our passion for missions to engage the unengaged and reach the unreached peoples at the ends of the earth. And this is what I love about the Alliance. From its inception, it's been motivated by compassion for the lost, for those who don't have access to the gospel. We intentionally focus our mission efforts on people groups that have little or no access. In fact, there are actually more Alliance churches around the world than there are in the United States. And 40% of those churches in the United States are non-Anglo, which means they're speaking different languages than the one I'm speaking right now. 37 distinct languages and dialects. So we have a very diverse uh, Alliance family around the world. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Alliance, set the example when he resigned in 1881 from his position at an affluent Presbyterian church in New York City to focus his efforts on reaching poor Italian immigrants who worked at the docks. So clearly, all nations at the ends of the earth are still being reached. Paul got things started, but it's apparent that our work of completing the mission of God by proclaiming the gospel of God to advance the kingdom of God is not yet finished. But before the gospel advanced to the ends of the earth, it had to advance through the other spheres of mission. And this raises the question, what happened beforehand that enabled the gospel to go to the ends of the earth? And this brings us in to the next circle of mission, Judea and Samaria. In Acts 8, right after Stephen was murdered, making him the first Christian martyr, widespread persecution broke out against the Jerusalem church. Again, we see a very clear transition in the story of Acts related to the gospel's expansion. Acts 8.1 says that the Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The same phrase used in Acts 1.8. So we've now broken into the next stage of the expansion of the kingdom of God. So Judea was the region surrounding Jerusalem. This was the land uh, allotted to the tribe of uh, Judah back in the book of Joshua when the Israelites finally made it out of the wilderness after wandering. They made it to the promised land after wandering in the desert uh, coming out of Egypt, the Exodus. And Judea, this is where most of the Jews lived because it was their holy land that surrounded their holy city where they worshipped their holy God in their holy temple. And the people of Judea were primarily Jewish. They had most everything in common. A common language, religion, culture, and God. And that's not to say there were no Gentiles, which is clear in Acts 10 when we have the conversion of the Gentile centurion Cornelius. But for the most part, the people who lived in this region were similar to one another. 
They held most things in common. So that's Judea. Samaria was a region located to the north of Judea. In the Old Testament, it referred to the city that became the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, which eventually fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Now, many of the Jewish people of Israel were, were exiled to Assyria, though some were left behind. And then the Assyrians, they brought in a lot of non-Jews, and these, the Jewish people there and the Gentiles began to marry, and then you had uh, what were considered half-Jews, or what the Jews considered half-breeds, because they weren't fully Jewish. So this entire region eventually became known as Samaria. Therefore, those who lived there were Samaritans. And the, the Jews and Samaritans, they, they avoided contact with one another as much as possible because of intense cultural and religious tension. They had similarities, but also strong differences at the same time. Now, Philip was the first person to preach to these Samaritans. He was one of the seven deacons chosen in Acts 6. Preaching to the Samaritans was actually a big paradigm shift for the primarily Jewish Christians. Could those who were not fully Jewish receive salvation? After all, the Jews were God's chosen people. Paul himself said salvation is for the Jew first. And up to this point, the apostles had only been preaching to the Jews. However, the response in Samaria made it clear, very clear, that yes, the gospel was for the Samaritans. They believed the message that Philip preached and were baptized. This people group was similar to, yet different than the Jews, and they received the gospel. So in our discussion of the ends of the earth, it's, it was pretty easy to nail down what the ends of the earth means today, namely unreached people groups. However, what is our Judea and our Samaria? Maybe we could see Davidson County as our Judea and the surrounding counties, Rowan, Davie, Forsyth, Guilford, Randolph, Montgomery, as our Samaria. Or maybe North Carolina is our Judea and the surrounding states, our Samaria. Maybe if you live in Lexington, Midway is your Samaria. Welcomites, Denton might be your Samaria. Now, I'm not making any value judgments either way with these comparisons, but what I'm saying is that on the one hand, there are people surrounding us right here where we live that we have a lot in common with, like the Jews did with most people in Judea. But on the other hand, there are people in our vicinity whom we differ from, like the Jews did with the Samaritans. Whether that's where we live, who we vote for, what religion we adhere to, what school we go to, what ethnicity we are, we live near people who are not exactly like us. However, we also have a lot in common with the people who are different than ourselves. In fact, I would argue that the Jews and the Samaritans had a lot more in common than they thought. And I would say the same is true of those we differ with. The ultimate similarity is that each of us is made in the image of God. And because of that, because of that very fact, we have inherent value and are worthy of being treated with dignity and respect. But 
it's a lot easier to get along with the Judeans in our lives because we we're, agree with them. We're a lot like them. The Samaritans, on the other hand, uh, maybe not so much. There isn't anything to tolerate with people that you agree with. So, who are the Samaritans in your life? Jesus told you to take the gospel to them. And the early Christians were obedient to that command, and we must be also. So at this point in Acts, Judea and Samaria are being reached. But again, we ask the question, what happened beforehand that enabled the gospel to go to Judea and Samaria? And this brings us another step closer to the epicenter of mission. Now we're in the sphere of Jerusalem. So Jesus ascended into heaven while speaking with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east of Jerusalem. Now typically when we talk about what Christ had commanded his disciples before ascending into heaven, we, we mentioned that he told them to go, which he did. However, before he commanded them to go, he told them something else. And I, I didn't realize this till a sermon I was listening to last year. The, the speaker was Reverend R.B. Landis. You might know him better as Pastor Ben or Ben. He said that the first thing Jesus commanded his disciples before his ascension wasn't to go, but to wait. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait for what and why. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them because he would give them the power to carry out this massive mission that he was assigning to them. Natural abilities, talents, and power wouldn't be sufficient to get the job done. They would need supernatural empowerment from God himself because this was his mission, the Missio Dei. And this came in Acts 2, this empowerment, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. As soon as this happens, as soon as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up before a crowd in Jerusalem and proclaims the gospel. Now, remember This is the same Peter who shied away from a servant girl when she asked him if he was one of Jesus' disciples. This is the same Peter who shied away from a servant girl. And now he's standing up before a crowd of thousands of people saying, you murdered Jesus and you need to repent. 3,000 people came to faith that day. 3,000. And as one of my favorite authors, Rob Reamer, says, that's a good day in the kingdom. The apostles continued this kind of bold witnessing throughout Jerusalem to their people only, the Jews. They went to those closest to and most like them first, and nothing would stop them because the Holy Spirit was empowering them. When confronted by the Jewish religious leaders in Acts 4, They were told to stop speaking in Jesus' name. And this is Peter and John's response. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And this actually points us back again to Acts 1.8. 
Jesus told his disciples they would be his what from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth? His witnesses. Witnesses. One commentary says this about the word witness. The term witness provides remarkable insight into the nature of the disciples' task. A witness gives testimony based on what the witness knows, what he or she has seen. Not hearsay, not rumor, not something someone else saw, but what he or she has experienced, seen, or heard. In their book, Encountering Theology of Mission, Craig Ott and Stephen Strauss say that the word witness refers to courtroom language. They go on to say the role of the Christian in the courtroom is not that of lawyer, judge, or jury. Witness is non-coercive. It has no power but the convincingness of the truth to which it witnesses. Witnesses are not expected, like lawyers, to persuade by the rhetorical power of their speeches, but simply to testify to the truth for which they are qualified to give evidence. But to be an adequate witness to the truth of God in the world, witnesses must be a lived witness involving the whole of life and even death. Is that you? Have you waited on God and allow him to meet you in such a way that you can't help but talk about Jesus and have your whole life consumed by him. He commissioned us to be his witnesses to what we have seen and what we had heard in the way we live our lives. And we must be witnesses in our Jerusalem, Lexington. Jerusalem ministry may not be as glamorous as ends of the earth ministry, but Ends of the earth ministry won't happen if we don't do Jerusalem ministry. Amen. We can get so focused on what's out there in the future that we miss out on what God has, God has called us to here and now. And I would argue that of all the people in this room, I'm probably most at risk for thinking this way. Danielle and I are candidates to be international workers with the Alliance. I'm currently fulfilling what's called Alliance Licensed Ministry Experience, ALME which is a two-year program which was put in place for candidates to do ministry in a local church here in the United States before going overseas. And why? Because if you aren't on mission in your own culture while speaking your own language, what in the world makes you think you're going to go to a culture where you're thousands of miles away in a foreign country, an ethnic and religious minority, and not speaking the language. But that's our future. And yet God has us here in Lexington right now. So I need to be, and I am for the record, fully invested and committed to where God has me now in Lexington, as evidenced by the fact that we just bought a house on Tuesday, setting down roots. But we need to remember that God is always preparing us for the next stage of life with the one before. He has us wait in Jerusalem so that we can be ready for Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So we have seen that the assigned mission is unfinished in all three spheres of mission. The ends of the earth, Judea and Samaria, and Jerusalem. To finish, I want to bring us down one more level. I snuck this one in there. 
the epicenter of mission, the local church and homes of Christians. Now, as we are discipled and we disciple others in our local churches and our homes, it's like an arrow set in a bow with the string being drawn back. The further it's drawn, the farther and faster the arrow will fly. We're preparing each other and our families to be launched out into the world as witnesses. And this is important. We aren't motivated by a cause or a philosophy or an agenda or a movement or a fad, but by a person. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we proclaim not opinions, not myths, not fables, nor legends, but the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead to save us from sin and death. We proclaim the historical fact of the resurrection, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This message must go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it starts here, in our church family, in our homes, with our spouses, our children, and our grandchildren. If we want to get there, it starts here. But we must remember, it cannot just stay here. It must get there. It must. With all that's been going on in the world, a lot of us uh, want Jesus to return now. And trust me, I understand. But I think the reason he waits is that if he were to return right now, like that, five and a half billion people immediately go to hell, eternally separated from the God who loves them. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He waits to give us time to complete the Missio Dei. There's an urgency to complete this assignment because our task is unfinished. A.B. Simpson famously said, we need to finish our unfinished work. We need to do the things we have thought of doing, intended to do, talked about doing, and are abundantly able to do. There are resources enough among us if touched by the consecrating power to save the world. This quote brings me back to Acts 1, 10 through 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return, but he's given us a task in the meantime. So here's the question. 
Are you on mission? Or are you standing around looking at the clouds?